Montana. And I'm Samantha. And you're listening to Reaper Tales. Today I'm going to tell Montana the story of, well, I I look at it as the death of Debbie Stewart because I want her to be more of the focus, but um, it's not just about her death. So we're probably going to title this William David Stewart just because it's, it's really about what he did. So I'll be telling her about that. But before we get into that, Montana, what are we drinking? <laughs> or so not glad. drinking. <laughs> so glad you asked. Uh, Samantha actually has COVID. Uh, yay. <laughs> I avoided it so successfully for so long. I know. I was kind of jealous of you. <laughs> um, so we're we're just going to say um, if you want to drink, go ahead and drink. But what we're doing tea. Hot tea. How about that? Yeah, that that sounds good. So, cheers to hot tea. Cheers. <laughs> so, if I do take longer breaks or deeper breaths, uh, bear with me. Because um, I do get rather winded a little easier than uh, I us- usually do. But hopefully this will go away quickly. So, it won't be something we have to deal with too long. So, Montana, are you ready to hear about Debbie Stewart? I am. I'm feeling, I gotta be honest with you, I'm feeling pretty spoiled right now because <laughs> you last, had such a break. <laughs> la, yeah, it's been such a break. Last week it was uh, Kelsey did an episode, now you're doing an episode, and I've just been like doing all this research. And I'm like, what? why are you doing research so fast? <laughs> <laughs> you got some time, girl. <laughs> yeah, well, once you get it done, then you can really relax because you already know you have it set up. Well, we know I never relax, but well, sure. True. But I am ready to hear about this case because you haven't told me anything about it no, at I all. Haven't. Uh, well, I didn't decide officially to do it until about a week ago, um, right around the time I found out I had COVID. So I then couldn't research because all I could do was sleep. Um, but I already had read the story. And uh, again, this is going to be my main uh, sources from Wicked North Alabama by Jacqueline Proctor Reeves. I got a lot of good ideas from her book. Um, and it really is a good read. So I highly recommend reading it. Um, just cover to cover. I read it so quickly. Um, but that's where I got this idea. I have a lot of other sources, but those are all websites, mostly. Um, I found a one that is www.findagrave.com, www.waff.com, al.com, whnt.com. You can tell which ones are news articles from uh, news reports, upi.com, apnews.com, and law.justia.com. And all of those will be in our show notes. Uh, So let's go ahead and get started. Debbie Stewart was born Deborah Harrison on February 29th, 1952. She's a leap year, baby. Oh. Information was very limited about her life before she met David Stewart, but what's known is that she had married a man in the military named Work and had a daughter with him before he was murdered in Korea. From all accounts, she was absolutely beautiful, five foot six inches tall, weighed about 130 pounds, auburn hair, blue-green eyes. She was a registered nurse, but had quit her job to stay at home with the children after meeting and marrying David Stewart and having two more children. Her children's names are Jojo Work, Beverly Stewart, and Megan Stewart. David Stewart was born in 1952 and was said to be good-looking and a quote-unquote youthful 32-year-old, soft-spoken, mild-mannered, and quiet. How often have we heard that? Me too. (laughs) You are youthful looking, but uh, I don't know that I would say mild-mannered and quiet or soft-spoken, none of those things. No, not at all. But I am 32. And you are youthful and good-looking, so there you go. There we go. We're halfway there. He was a psychologist coordinator for a training group at the Wallace Center. Debbie met David in 1975. At the time, Debbie was a widow with a five-month-old daughter. Debbie and David lived together for three years before getting married in August of 1978. 
While they were living together and before they were married, Debbie found out she was pregnant, but that pregnancy was terminated by an abortion. I mentioned that just because that's, it was something that was mentioned in the case when I actually read it. So I wonder if that led to, it, it wasn't explained why, but I wonder if that was more his decision than hers. Um, but it didn't really go into any detail. After they married, they moved into a home in Southeast Decatur. By this time, Debbie had quit her job as a nurse, so they were living on David's income alone as a family. If it was enough at the time after child number two and number three were born, it quickly became apparent it was not going to be sufficient to support them. This was especially true when they decided they had to renovate, not once, but twice, to make room for their growing family. Wait, I'm just going to say I wouldn't renovate. I'd buy a new home. What did he do again? He was a um, psychologist coordinator. So like a receptionist? No, 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 no. He was, um, I don't, I think he had a degree, but he worked as like a psychologist in a, um, uh, I don't know what you would call it now, but the, the training group was like training people that had mental disabilities to be able to be into the workforce and to live on their own and that sort of thing from what I could understand. So like a, uh, social worker, family planner, uh, psychologist, maybe, um, it really didn't go into a lot of detail and I didn't think to, um, I don't even know if you would even be able to find that position honestly anymore. Cause this was back in the seventies. They probably don't even call it that anymore. Um, but that is where he worked full time the entire time that they were married. And that was what he was doing when they met. So it had to do pretty good. Um, but obviously, it, you know, it wasn't enough to feed and house three people, let alone five, once it got down to having a third child. So was it her choice to quit her job or was it his? Did it say? Uh, it didn't say specifically whose choice it was for her to quit, but I'll go into some more details later. Okay. Uh, I would say it probably wasn't her idea, but it would be hard to tell. Um, I, I would say once they hit financial troubles, you know, that's, that's the question. Like, why wouldn't you just go back to work, even though you do have children? Although three kids sometimes... I mean, she was a registered nurse, so she probably could have made enough to afford childcare and still make more money. But honestly, once you get to like two, three kids, it ends up costing more for childcare than you're even going to make on an income. So, but back then, yeah, in the seventies, her it, it might have done really well to help compensate for that. But at the same time, and I don't know anything about this dude except what you've just told me, but the way you kind of paved the way makes it sound like he might be an abuser and one tactic of abusers is financial independency and this they refuse to let their spouse have financial independency this is very true so anyways go on <laughs> <laughs> all right <clears throat> so again they were they quote unquote, had to renovate not once, but twice to make room for their growing family. I don't know if they finished the first renovation and then child number two came. And so they ended up having to like do more um, than they originally thought. It didn't really specify. In addition to the financial troubles, Debbie appeared to be suffering from postpartum depression after the difficult pregnancy and birth of the third daughter. By this point, the marriage had obviously deteriorated. So that's setting the scene. Now we get to July 10th, 1984. So they had been married nearly, well, they had met, they'd been together for nearly nine years at this point. And how old were their children at this point? Let's see. Well, her daughter that she had when they got, when they got together would have been nine. Uh, and I didn't have the date of birth for the other two. But they were still young. But at the, at the, the, they at least were born after they got married, which was three years after they met. So. Toddler, infant. Yeah. I mean, you'd be talking at the youngest, uh, six years old. Or I mean, at the oldest, six years old. So probably, and then it'd be like, so probably like five and below. 
at the oldest. So July 10th, 1984, the day started like any other. David left to go to work, leaving Debbie at home with their three children. Throughout the day, the four of them went back and forth visiting with their neighbor, Evelyn Grace, and her children. Around 6 p.m., Evelyn took the two oldest to a ball game, leaving Debbie at home with the youngest daughter. Shortly after, David came home from work and found Debbie sitting in the dark. When he asked her what was wrong, she stated that a rep from the utility company had come by the house about a return check and was there to turn the electricity off. At the time, two neighbors had been there, so it was obviously very embarrassing for Debbie. As would be expected, Debbie and David began having a very heated argument. As I had stated earlier, money had been tight, and I think these arguments were probably pretty common at this point. Um, I mean, I can only imagine, especially if they're to the point where the electricity is getting cut off. This was not the first time this had come up, I'm sure. And this was just kind of like the boiling point. But what exactly, well, I guess she could be mad. It would be her being mad at him. Okay. Never mind. Yeah, and you know, I mean, you got to think of, of about situations like this where she's angry and she's coming at him because obviously she was waiting for him, so she probably like jumped at him right when he walks through the door. He's immediately going to be defensive, you know. He's going to have his own excuses, whatnot. It's just going to go back and forth. It's it's not going to go anywhere good. Yeah. According to David, Debbie accused David of being weak for not demanding more money at work and then informed him that she was leaving him. She even went as far to pack a bag and walk out the door. At 9 p.m., Evelyn returned with the two oldest girls, walking them to the backyard from behind the house. So the way it was described to me is like she didn't come from like the front of the house and then walked around to the backyard. She actually came from the back and David was sitting in the backyard, um, just sitting there when she got there. And he asked the two kids to stay outside with him because he said Deb- Debbie was inside trying to get the baby to sleep. Keep in mind, she had already left at this point. According to David, David and the children went to sleep in the house not long after. At 10 p.m., David wakes up when Debbie, Debbie comes home to uh, comes back into the house to inform him that she's taking the girls and going to Texas to live with her sister. David responded by picking up a book he had been reading earlier and hits her on the head with it. He then grabs a jump rope one of the children had dropped in the room on the floor, picks it up, and strangles her to death. So she was not dead when he threw the book. So he hits her with a book and then strangles her with a jump rope. Yeah, that he just found on the floor. I mean, seems like a reasonable response to her just saying she's going to leave. Yeah sounds totally reasonable to me so obviously this next part we only have one side of the story but according to david blood was coming from her nose and mouth so he moved her body to the shower in the bathroom adjacent to their bedroom i'm assuming they didn't have like a a bathroom that was joined to their bedroom at the time so now what was he gonna do obviously he had to dispose of the body somehow he started he wait Wait, what does he do now? You call the police, sir. Well, I mean, how are you going to judge? The book, okay, that would be an accident. Like, I just, I overreacted. I threw the book. I didn't think I was going to hit her in the head. Whoops, it happened. How are you going to explain that he's, you know, strangling her to death? Because it would be very obvious that that's what caused her death. Yeah, but even in the 80s, like, even in the 80s, something like that, let me tell you. Listen. Back then... (laughs) If that had gone, if he had called the police and that had gone to court, it would have been probably a crime of passion. Yeah, probably. And we all know, just like crime of passions are bullshit, uh, and the it goes along the same line of um, the gay panic mm-hmm. defense. Defense. Yeah. But back then, he probably would have gotten off. Well, and honestly, let's think about it. What guy wouldn't feel terrible for him because she was threatening to take his children and leave him? Exactly. She was just giving him notice. I mean, I feel like that was fair. That's just me. Don't, don't give your man notice. <laughs> no, just leave. Sorry, that's, for, that's what I did. For the 80s. I mean, if you're in an abusive situation right now, don't give him notice. But if you're not, give them notice. Whatever. It'll help you in the long run. It really will. 
Yeah. So according to David, like I said, blood was coming from her nose and mouth. So he moved her into the shower trying to figure out what he was going to do. He had to dispose, dip, dispose of the body somehow. He stated no, later. Like, <laughs> you know what? <laughs> I'm here. I am here. I'm so proud of you. I'm so happy. <laughs> Give me a break. Look, I offered to do the case this week. <laughs> I'm but trying. I'm trying. He stated later he knew he could not dispose of the whole body, and if he was caught, they would send him to jail, and the children would be taken away from him. I'm going to pause here, because this is a trigger warning. <laughs> this is gory. It's rough, so if you want to fast forward, like, maybe 15, 30 seconds, um, it won't take me long to go through it, but it is pretty rough. And no, Montana, you can't fast forward. No, so, I'm, here. I'm, here. I'm here for the so long run. He used a utility razor, or he used utility razor blades, which I'm assuming are just larger razor blades, to cut the flesh and a hacksaw to cut through her bones. When he finished, her body was in eight pieces. He then wrapped each body piece in a newspaper and placed it in a black plastic bag. At some point, he also added lime to the bags to kill the smell of decomposition. For the time being, he decided to put the bags in the unfinished bathroom upstairs and lock the door. Here's here's something I want to understand. <laughs> I just I just need to understand. Why is it that a lot of murderers and I won't say a lot, but I would say a lot that I've read about or heard about or whatever, their first go-to is I gotta dispose of this body. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to cut it up. Yeah. First off, sir or madam or whoever, that's just going to cause a bigger cleanup job. Mm-hmm. And also, you're just making more puzzle pieces for people to find. True. If you have one, it's just so this, one it's going to make even less sense later on. But yeah, I agree with you. I've never but. understood that. I've never <laughs> understood cutting up a. First off, I don't. I'm I don't literally... understand the idea of like <laughs> having to dispose of a body in general. Yeah, well, I couldn't that, do that, that too. But. Well, I mean, I've thought about it. Don't get me wrong. What I would do if I had to, if you if you say that you haven't, you're lying. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But my first go-to is not to cut up a body because first off, that takes a lot of work. And it takes a lot of work for me to even get out of my bed every day, <laughs> let alone like physically cut up a body. Because it's not, have you ever cut a ham? Yes. Ever cut? Like, yeah. Yeah. It takes a lot of work. Even if you got the electric thing, it takes a lot of work. Can you <laughs> imagine? Electric things. Well, and I just had a really morbid thought and people are going to really love this but i mean what about the people that like stab people like dozens and dozens and dozens of times like they can barely lift their hand they can barely lift their arm how yeah i i couldn't i'd get like two stabs in and i'd be like bro i need to catch my breath can you just like <laughs> go ahead and die seriously i don't have it in i don't me. have i don't have it in me. <laughs> this is too much work just don't say anything i right? <laughs> That's just like anytime I hear about somebody like cutting up a body, <laughs> that is my thought process is God, that sounds like a lot of work. Yeah. I just I don't think I I don't think I could have it even mm -mm. I would just go to jail. At least there I wouldn't have to do anything. Well, <laughs> well. in theory. <laughs> in theory. <laughs> but that, I mean that's just always when you I mean it does it, sound exhausting. But then on, on top of it he just sticks it in the bathroom upstairs and locks the door like yeah, buddy, what are you doing? You're. Uh, this will be fine. This what? Fine. What is this? I mean, okay, so he took the. Uh, wait, I have a better question. Where did he get the lime? Yeah, um, that was never explained, <laughs> but it says it was at some point. So it could have been. I'll I'll get to how long it takes him to actually dispose of the body, but it was at some point between the time that he put them in the bat put the pieces in the bags and before he disposes of the pieces so, so it could have been some time like it could have been like days in between 
Oh, okay. So uh, I was thinking like... So at some point, I think it started to smell. And so he went up there and did that. But also, how do people get lime and it not be suspicious? You're a farmer? He's not a farmer. He lives in freaking Decatur. Trust me, he's not a farmer. They don't know that. <laughs> I feel like he was well known in this area, but... Samantha, okay. you need to do a an experiment <laughs> I need, you I to, need go. to just start buying little amounts so that way I have it just in case. <laughs> that too. But I need you to go to like your like, you know, store. What are those called? Um, Hardware stores? Gardening no. stores? Gardening store. Not gardening stores. Farmers markets. Not farmers markets. Um, I don't think they have lime. <laughs> I don't think. I think they just that, have that's like. That's not the right limes anyway. <laughs> I think they just have limes. Not lime. Uh <laughs> the tractor supply stores and things like that yeah. around you or around Decatur and ask for lime and see what their response is. <laughs> Can we do that? Will you please do that? Have no, Paul I actually. And then just don't answer the phone for a while. And see what <laughs> oh, that's terrible. Now we'd be busted. I won't do any good. <laughs> sorry go on so anyway um lastly before he went back to bed he checked on the children to make sure they were still asleep in their beds the morning the morning after david took the children to his aunt's house and began weaving his tail to cover up the crime while also working to determine what to do with the pieces of her body still in the bathroom upstairs that morning debbie was supposed to give her dad a ride to work when David showed up, he apparently explained a reason sufficient for her father at the time. David also told neighbors and family members that morning that Debbie had been suffering from severe postpartum depression and had packed a small bag and just vanished in the middle of the night. Over the next several weeks, Debbie's family became more and more worried when there was no contact whatsoever from her. Everyone in the family, I, I says I put this in here and now I can't say it. So I'm not vehemently. Thank you. My voice is barely handling this as it is. Don't put difficult words in here. I'm telling myself. Everyone in the family defended Debbie, saying there was no way she would simply walk away from her children. Well, here here's the other thing too. So you're telling me she had a plan to leave her husband, but she didn't tell anybody else. No. And you know that at the very least her family would have been supporting her in any way yeah. they needed to. Well, I mean, she, she said she was she leaving and going to Texas to, to be with her, her sister. sister. Mm -hmm. So you're telling me her sister didn't know? No, apparently she didn't because she, she never said anything about like expecting her. So I think she had just made the decision to go. Um, but I mean, even her dad didn't have any idea and she was supposed to be picking him up in the morning. So she obviously hadn't thought it through like planned it that much, but at the same time, if she had decided to leave in, in theory, if she had decided to leave and actually did leave, she definitely would have reached out to them at that point. Yeah. I mean, prior to what happened, no, I can kind of see that just making like spur of the moment decisions. And I just got to get out of here. I'm going to take the kids. I'm going to go. But after that, you would call. I'm on my way, whatever. Okay. Yeah. So that doesn't make sense um, on that side of it. But yeah, I can see her not. I, I can see it both ways. I would think she would have at least asked her sister before she decided to move, but she could have also been lying. She could have told him that she was going to Texas to be with her sister and she wasn't. That wasn't her actual plan. Yeah. Well, I can say if I, if I was really upset with, well, I wouldn't leave my city, but if things were so bad with my husband, my first place to go would be to you. And so I would just be like, all right, well, I'm packing up my crap. I'm moving to Samantha's. I wouldn't even have to call you. No, no. <laughs> so, no. It'll never come to that. <laughs> no. You wouldn't have to call me, but you would have a few hours of opportunity to do so. So it would be appreciated. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Let me make up the. You wouldn't for you. have to, we but in this case too, it still would have been hours. So maybe that's what she was thinking. Like I'm going to go see my sister. I got plenty of time to call her when I'm after I get on the road and get out of this house. Her neighbor told the police that it would make no sense for her to leave without a car. 
They finally convinced David to file a missing persons report on July 31st, 1984. That was 21 days after the incident. To further support his claims that she had left voluntarily, he also filed a petition to the probate court requesting that she be committed upon her return to the Department of Mental Health, alleging she had a mental problem that made her a danger to herself. Okay, yeah, again, back then, and I guess we were starting starting to kind of come out of it, but any woman who read books too much, (laughs) who got too angry, who cried, you know, when they had their period. Hi, that's me every month. Uh, you know, got committed. Too mm-hmm. emotional. Too too angry. Too literary focused. <laughs> it just shows she just you needs what to stay at home and make me a sandwich. That's all I want. Exactly. Ugh. Well, but I mean, at this point, obviously what he's doing is he's just trying to kind of I know um, back up the the backstory and you know she probably had some form of history or some kind of evidence that somebody else might support the idea that she had a mental problem being the postpartum depression now that doesn't necessarily mean she was a danger to herself though so I don't know how he would have proven that aspect but it did just say that he filed a petition it doesn't say that it was ever actually like filed to where that would actually happen if she were to ever come back it's just frustrating to me that that stuff like that could just go by the wayside like if you if you really in that situation now i feel like and probably not maybe this is just me being hopeful if uh, if a wife goes missing she has young children the husband goes and says well she has a history of postpartum depression and she's been suffering from it for a while the police would be like okay has she seen somebody? Have you done anything about it? Like, blah, blah, blah. No? Okay. Well, we're not going to listen to you, you little fuckhead. Well, yeah. I mean, at this point, obviously, um, I think nowadays it's a little bit more accepted and a little bit more understood as far as, especially postpartum depression being what it is. It's more common than most people know. So I think that it is starting to come out more and more that that is a problem that Uh, women go through and it's not it's not a one-off it's not something wrong with them it means that they need help like dealing with everything going on and it makes perfect sense if you take one second to consider what they just went through yeah uh, they there's so many different like articles and books written about the fact that not just pregnancy in and of itself but childbirth childbirth is so traumatic and then and then the after then you just have a little human being that you're supposed to keep alive. Who is extremely demanding. Exactly. Like, and your no. and then all over And the then place. a lot of times what I've seen in my experience with my friends, and obviously not my own personal experience because no children, but, you know, they get constant attention for the first few weeks, but that attention is on the baby. Nobody thinks hey, I'll hold that baby. Why don't you go take a shower? Why don't you go take a nap? They don't think about the mom a lot of the time. So they're paying all this attention to the baby, then they leave and that's it. And then after the first three weeks or so, nobody's there. So then you're just stuck with this child. And half the time, the if you do have a spouse, they don't have leave. They're not allowed to have leave. They're not the one that had the baby in the United States. So then they have to go back to work. And now you're literally left alone with this child. So, I mean, it even said he went to work and she was just left alone with three kids. Yeah, uh, no okay, way. no thanks. So, yeah, I can understand if she was a little upset and a little overwhelmed. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I agree with you on that. I do think it's, a little, it's less of a, of a thing now that he could get away with that. Um, I don't know how much he really would have gotten away with it back then. Um, I do wonder if his job of being maybe a psychologist maybe lent him a little more, you know, leeway in that area. But like I said, it didn't say that it actually went through. It just said he filed the petition. The simple fact that she was his husband gave him a lot of leeway back then. Let's be honest. So true. He went to even greater lengths to support his narrative. 
He even convinced Odell Cruden or Crudden, I think it's Crudden, um, a resident of New Orleans, Louisiana, to call collect from various pay phones throughout the French Quarter so that that location would show when the phone bills came in. This way, he could prove, quote-unquote, to Debbie's family and the police that she was there and had called him. This unfortunately resulted in a fervent search there by the family who dragged David along to help and the New Orleans police who put up missing person flyers all over the city and put in a very big search there. Um, I didn't say for how long, but I mean, that, that involved the police even getting involved trying to find her. Meanwhile, after her remains had been kept in the house for three weeks, Ugh. David decided to bury them in the backyard and build a fish pond on top. He hired Virgil Key to help with the construction. When the day came to pour the cement, David fired Key. After some time after, or for some time after, under the cover of night, David moved the body to the body pieces to the space under the pond. Again, this is why I said this is why it's going to make make even less sense later on. He still put it all in one place. Well, uh, so how stupid is that? Like, why? Why wouldn't you just? Bro, what like, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, I guess uh, he just didn't know what he was doing yet, and and this was just a backup. But still, it's just like, oh my gosh, this is just so stupid. Well, and the simple fact is, he was he went to New Orleans. Like, why not take a couple of pieces there? Like, that's so morbid, and that's so terrible of me <laughs> to think. But it's just like, if you're gonna cut them up, like spread them out. You would think, but he obviously didn't. He just left it there. Oh, God. And then in your uh, own backyard. Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. It, it gets better. Trust me. <laughs> what? So he moves the body pieces to the space under the pond, pours the cement, and finishes the pond. Unfortunately, or maybe as luck would have it, a neighbor had witnessed David pouring the cement at night, which seemed a rather odd time to be working on his new project. You don't and say. The neighbor, and the neighbor never forgot. David made sure to keep the landscaping up, and the area remained pretty around the pond where the children often played. That is sick. Mm-hmm. That's fucking disgusting. Your children mm-hmm. are playing. As time passed, the story around Debbie's disappearance began to fade from people's memories. David must have thought he had gotten away with it. He even began a relationship. Just wait. Six months after Debbie's disappearance with his 15-year-old babysitter. Sorry, that is... According to law.justia.com, six months after the relationship began, they were sexually involved. What the fuck? So he's a pedophile. Apparently. That's that's all that was mentioned. So he he never got charges brought up against him, which is surprising. Um, But I think it was because that... I don't know that that was found out until much later. That's fucking disgusting. Yeah. Six months after her disappearance. It's not even the time frame between when his wife died. No, but I'm just saying, like, that 15-year-old babysitter was probably only working there for six months. Yeah. so Because it was after she left. It was enough. So he immediately went after her. He's a freaking predator. Yeah, it was enough time for him to, like, groom her into a position to do that to her. Oh, my God. That is gross so one person who never forgot what had happened was the neighbor maggie bowen maggie tried tried for years to convince the police of what she had seen and that she just knew he had buried debbie's body under the pond he didn't start the project until right after debbie disappeared and had poured the cement at night while the authorities may have believed her without any evidence of foul play or probable cause they didn't have any grounds for a search warrant and unsurprisingly Mr. Stewart was unwilling to let them dig up the backyard to check for the body. You know Maggie was back there watching him the whole time, oh, yeah. waiting for him to slip up. Like, she didn't just happenstance upon this. My girl oh, no. Maggie was back there with binoculars. Every night, probably, watching to see if he was going to do something. Maggie is me. Yeah, actually. <laughs> <laughs> this is why you can't live next to me. I don't want you seeing nothing. <laughs> Police Chief Frank Schaefer Jr., said that Stewart apparently never even realized he was a suspect from day one and that he didn't run because he just maintained that she was missing and would push off any further questions by saying things like, you're embarrassing me in front of my neighbors. It just never occurred to him what would happen in just three years. 
Wouldn't you know it, financial problems apparently continued to follow him, and in 1987, David filed for bankruptcy, and his house was foreclosed. Wait, I forgot to ask this question. Did she have life insurance on her? No. Well, I'm assuming not, because it was never mentioned. Okay. Not this time. (laughs) Not this time. (laughs) But this, this is so good, though. It was put on, the house was put on auction and purchased by a couple for $85,000. Per Wicked North Alabama, quote, they began the process of remodeling the house and prepared for their move. The new owners were looking at the home one day when their soon-to-be neighbor, Maggie, the woman who had repeatedly tried to convince the police that David Stewart had killed his wife, stepped out of her home to have a chat. She told them everything. No, Debbie had not walked out on her husband and children, and no, she was not living a carefree life in New Orleans or anywhere else. She was dead, the neighbor insisted, and buried under the fish pond. At her urging, the new owners called the police and gave them permission to dig up their yard, end quote. All right, my girl. Kudos to my girl. But also, David, what the fuck? Why wouldn't you just, uh, you know your house is going to auction. Why wouldn't you unbury that and like take it with you? He never thought he was a suspect. He genuinely thought it was behind him. The audacity of white men. Uh, Also, maybe a possible personality disorder where he feels like he's not going to get caught. Oh, a narcissist? Possibly. Anyway. Police arrived shortly after noon on August 19th, 1987 at 2323 Springdale Road. They brought with them city workers with jackhammers and shovels. About an hour after they started digging, breaking through two feet of concrete, the first black bag was pulled out of the earth, and in it were human remains, later identified by dental records as Debbie Stewart. The remains had actually been partially preserved due to the lime that had been poured over the parts. Maggie was quoted as saying, I had hoped she wasn't going to be there, but I knew she was. Thank goodness for her persistence. I can't imagine what she went through all those years probably was assumed to be a crazy neighbor or I'm sure she was all kinds of, there was all kinds of gossip about her, but then she finds out that she'd been right all along and she was the only one. Look. And if it hadn't been for her, Debbie might not have ever been found. Honestly, she probably never would have been found. Be that crazy neighbor. I'm that crazy neighbor. Hey, my neighborhood. If you see something, say something. If you feel like something's wrong, there's a reason. There's always a reason. You've got some kind of subconscious thing going on that's telling you there's something else going on here. Listen to your gut. Absolutely. Especially if you're a woman. Quickly, the rest of the bags were uncovered and David was led away from his workplace in handcuffs. By 4 o'clock p.m., he was officially booked for Debbie's murder and was taken to the Morgan County Jail where no bond was set. Stewart, well, I guess it wasn't initially, Stewart entered a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. When the grand jury met to decide on the charge to be brought up, it was decided that he would be charged with murder, but that it did not meet the requirements for a charge of capital murder. Do you know what the difference in capital murder is? In parentheses, because I thought you would probably ask. Okay, (laughs) good. Per samdixonlaw.com. Capital murder is by far the most serious of violent crimes in Alabama. Now, it is defined differently in each state, so you'd have to look it up. But capital murder is a Class A felony, carrying with it a potential for 10 years to life sentence or even a possible penalty of death. Technically speaking, a defendant or individual charged or suspected of capital murder involves allegations where that individual planned or possessed premeditation to commit murder. However, there are a number of other... um, capital offenses other than premeditated murder, but I wasn't going to go into it. So basically the biggest difference is in the number one in the punishment. Capital murder can be sentenced to death while a charge of murder has the option of 10 years to life. The way that I would say in this case is because there wasn't, they didn't believe there was premeditation or planning in, so there, in, in this murder. Capital murder is basically first degree murder. In other states, it's first-degree murder. Yeah. So the way I would say it is, if the blow to the head by the book had killed her, then that would have been manslaughter. But because he then proceeded to strangle her with the jump rope, it became murder, but not capital murder, because there wasn't planning. Well, and what I don't, I guess for me, what I don't fully understand is what the time frame for planning a murder, like, what is this, the, I haven't gone to law school, obviously, um, (laughs) 
but what is the obviously what's the (laughs) distinction between like the time frame of you know planning a murder and you know first degree planning a murder and second degree you know not planning a murder and well I, i know the difference between second degree and manslaughter but my whole point in that is he hit her with a book he had enough time to consciously pick up a jump rope and strangle her and maybe you know quote unquote crime of passion whatever yeah but at the same time there was a time frame between that well i think that time frame is really the difference between manslaughter and murder right so manslaughter means that you killed somebody but not necessarily with the intent to kill them murder is killing somebody with the intent to kill them. So that's why I say the if the blow to the head by the book had happened and killed her, that would have been manslaughter because he wasn't trying to kill her at that point. But because he proceeded to then strangle her, that became murder. Because you had that moment to decide, I can stop it here and call the police or I can continue to make sure that she's dead. So from what I can tell, that's how I differentiate between the two. Okay, uh, and I can and see that. And then planning would be like actually putting into uh, putting an actual in plan in motion. And this this was kind of too yeah. This was kind of too. This was definitely a crime of more of passion than any kind of plan in place or spur of the moment. Lord knows, I hope he didn't plan that because that was really, really bad. Well, that's why I asked about the lime. I was like, motherfucker just had lime. (laughs) (laughs) No, No, I think that was a afterthought, Uh, probably quickly made uh, after uh, a day or two. Well, and that's, that's the distinction too. What if he did have lime on hand? What if he had actually planned this, but there's not like evidence for them to say that he had actually planned it. Maybe I'm just pulling at hairs, but the whole, that whole thing in my head is like, there's no way it goes. But that's why it goes to the grand jury, right? They bring what evidence they have, what they can prove. The grand jury says, this is what we think. And so they came back with, this doesn't meet the requirement. You can't prove to us that he planned and premeditated this. So we're going to say, yes, it's murder, but not capital murder. Okay, fair enough. So that's, that's left up to the grand jury, I guess, is how we'll go with it. I just don't like that there's a sentencing differentiation between the two. Because if somebody is going to kill somebody on the spur of the moment, they're just as dangerous as somebody who's going to plan a murder, quite frankly. The only difference is you're never going to get a heads up on the second degree murder. And you might get a heads up on the first degree. Well, they're just as dangerous, but one that I guess the idea is one that has planned it out is more likely to do it again than somebody who spur of the moment had this decision and did it it was less thought thought out of a response yes they are they are likely to do it again but they're less likely because this other one had plenty of time to change their mind do something else leave whatever they specifically chose to do this according to who listen (laughs) if you're a criminologist and you can tell me and you can tell me (laughs) This guy was too dumb, so well, I don't think he had dumb. much of a chance of, of having an o- another option. I just want him to get first degree. And I want him to get <laughs> well, that didn't happen. <laughs> That's my only setback. But if you're a criminologist and you can tell me the statistics or the, I don't know, theology or whatever behind why those two different those two things are vastly different and they get like different sentences because if second degree murder is actually less of an offense let me know i want to know i want to understand because to me if somebody if i'm sitting next to you on the couch and i suddenly have a spurt of i want to fucking murder you and i murder you that to me sounds like a more dangerous person (laughs) than somebody (laughs) (laughs) because you just don't know like you just don't know if that'll ever like happen again well and and you know like in alabama the only distinction between the two is capital murder carries with it the possibility of being sentenced to death Um, and a life sentence well but the other one does too that's the only difference capital murder has the option of death non-capital has the exact same opportunity of 10 to life it just doesn't have the option of death. 
So you can still get life in prison with a non-capital murder charge if you're convicted. Um, you're just not going to be... Re- well, yeah. And I mean, I'm sure they have the option of not giving you parole, just like they do with anything else. Okay, maybe that's it. Anyways, we've gone off into a... <laughs> Surprise. Sorry. <laughs> into a wormhole. I am just personally... Uh, proud that I was like, I know she's going to ask what the difference is. So I might as well just I'm put so this proud in you. <laughs> I thought ahead, even with having COVID. How about that? Look at you. A non-capital murder charge was handed down and Bell was set at $250,000. Well, he obviously didn't have that kind of money. So he remained in jail until the trial. You don't his say. Def- <laughs> his- <laughs> he foreclosed on a house that had a dead body in the backyard. <laughs> He's too stupid to yeah, leave it. Dumb. Oh my God. His defense attorney, Norman Roby, requested a change of venue, but the request was denied. Stewart would remain in jail for one year and one month waiting for his trial. September 19th, 1988 was the first day of the trial with jury selection. They were very careful in selecting this jury, making sure to ask each potential juror if they felt like they could be impartial because this is all local. So this has been a story for a while. Obviously they wanted to be very careful. Some said that they didn't know for sure, but in the end, eight women and four men were selected along with two alternates. The trial was a spectacle with the room so packed that people were standing in the back during the proceedings. There was much speculation as to whether he should be sent to a state mental hospital until he was quote unquote cured or if he would end up with as little as 10 years. I think the spectacle is, are they going to like, are they going to do something that small or are they actually going to hand it, hand him the book? At some point during the proceedings, the judge had to stop the trial to address women that were standing in the back talking to each other. <laughs> imagine, <laughs> imagine, being those two, <laughs> imagine being those two women. Like you think being called out in school is bad. The judge has to stop the trial and say, hey, you, yeah, you, the one in pink, stop talking. (laughs) That would, uh, I wouldn't be able to go back. Also, what were they going to cure him of? Well, he was saying he was claiming insanity. So that's, I think that's why I said, quote unquote, cure. I think it's pretty insane that he chopped up his wife's body and then buried it all together. Yeah. That doesn't mean that I think he's insane. Well, he's not insane. He's just stupid. (laughs) During testimony, Debbie's sister told about how it took, how it took her and the rest of Debbie's family three weeks to convince David to file a missing persons report on her. The medical examiner testified that due to the decomposition, it wasn't possible to provide an exact cause of death, but that she had a black eye and two inches of her neck were missing. When David took the stand, he went through their life together, mentioning most of what I've already included. He also added that Debbie refused to go back to work to help provide the necessary money to support their growing family and called him spineless for not insisting for a raise from his work. This is coming from one side, obviously. He also stated she refused to move to a smaller home or to file for bankruptcy. Once she started suffering from postpartum depression, everything just started falling apart. While he explained the part about burying her remains, he said he buried her head closest to the house so it would be close to him and the children. Ew. And in parentheses, I said, ew. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you're inside my head right now. <laughs> per Wicked North Alabama, quote, Stewart installed a liner and landscaped around the pond. He said he went to the fish pond almost daily to pray and talk to his wife sharing with her the activities of their children. He told his dead wife that he kept the landscaping pretty just for her. I wanted her close by me, and I felt she wanted to be close to her children, Stewart explained when asked why he kept her on the property. Wait, was he talking to his dead wife at the fish pond while he was also raping a 15-year-old? Oh, wait, probably. I mean, probably not simultaneously, but yes, during the same time period. Gross. Okay. So much gross. When asked why he killed her, he simply stated that it was because she threatened to take the children away from him. He managed to break down in tears at different times during his testimony, even having to leave the stand at some point so he could compose himself. When he was asked what his thoughts were when he found out the police had found his wife's remains, he responded that he felt the police had, quote, interrupted something holy, end quote. 
It was claimed that he was not advised of his right to remain silent and that he has also been he had also been taunted with the electric chair by the arresting officers, which was used to claim his confession had been coerced, but these claims were dismissed. Ultimately, on September 22, 1988, after only one hour of deliberation, the jury came back with a verdict of guilty of Sir. murder, not capital murder. Sir. Okay, Miranda rights, that's a huge deal. Miranda rights are important. However, coercion of your confession, they could throw out the confession and still convict you. You, oh yeah, you buried your wife's multiple pieces of her body under a fish pond that you made. Yeah, there's a witness. (laughs) There's so much there. Like they didn't need that. I I think that was. I think that was the least part. The least part of the of the trial. To be perfectly honest, I I don't think think, anybody on that jury needed to hear that confession. I think that was like the the defense attorney was like. Like I don't know. We'll just say. Yeah, I think that's exactly what it was. <laughs> I got nothing here. <laughs> I got to I got to do something. As the verdict was read, Stewart showed no emotion. On November fifteenth, nineteen eighty-eight, Judge Rudolph Slate sentenced Stewart to ninety-nine years in prison, stating that the sentence was not enough for the crime committed, but that was the hardest, harshest penalty he could impose. There are no marital. Quote, there are no marital pressures to justify what you did. End quote, he said. No, there's not. Stewart was also ordered to pay his children $10,000 through the victim's compensation fund. So let me ask you this. Uh, 99 years, uh, is there any likelihood of parole? He was up for parole. Um, I don't know how many years it was. It didn't say, but I'll get to that. Okay. There was an appeal that I was able to find from 1989 that mentioned the two items that I mentioned above, the right to remain silent and the taunting from the officers. Those were included together um, as a claim of coercion. In addition to Stewart not being given a psychiatric evaluation prior to the trial and the dismissal of the request to change venue, as far as the change of venue, I think that's just kind of standard. I, I feel like I see that pretty much every time. If they ask for a change of venue and it doesn't go through, they always put it in the appeal. Um, but that was found that the ruling was sound because the due diligence was done by the defense and the prosecution to eliminate jurors that seem to have any kind of bias. Okay, so I have a question about the, um, the psychiatric uh, evaluation before the trial. So we're going to pause real quick. But wait, before we pause, my question is, is it a requirement? Because I, I know in some cases... I have details as to what the ruling was. Do you want me to get to that first? No, because I want to know <laughs> I want to know about this. Wait, is this going to answer my question? Probably. Okay. Well, I just know... <laughs> I, know in, I know in some cases, like, a judge will request or will require a psychiatric evaluation. I don't know if that's state by state, if it's a requirement, or if it's just like up to a judge's discretion. It'll answer that question. Okay, go ahead. So first I'm going to go through the right to remain silent one. In the case of the right to remain silent, they claimed he was basically bullied into a confession, but the ruling was that Stewart never specifically said he wished to remain silent and asked for an attorney or asked for an attorney. So there was no requirement for the officers to immediately stop the interrogation. It was never argued. I'm going to, I'm just going to say this. It was never argued whether he was read his rights or not. They all agreed that he was read his rights. What he was claiming is he said that he wanted to remain silent and they continued to interrogate him. That was never actually stated explicitly in the interrogation. Okay, sir. Nor did he ask for an attorney. Okay, but let's be clear on this. When they read you your Miranda rights, it says you have the right to remain silent. They can continue to question you, and you have the right to shut the fuck up. And he didn't. (laughs) And he didn't. (laughs) (laughs) Further, it was ruled that the officers saying things like he was going to fry or go to the electric chair for what he did was not applicable, since those statements were made after Stewart had already provided his statement. Also, the fact that he was charged with murder and not capital murder, from which I, from what I could tell, that wouldn't have been something the officer would have known at the time of the statement because that hadn't been brought to the grand jury yet. 
So that had not been determined yet. So them saying that stuff, they can say whatever they want. Let's yeah. be honest. And police officers you can will call it, you. You can call it bullying, but they probably feel like you should go to the electric chair. So they're just saying whatever the hell they want to say. So again, that's not really applicable. You can't say that was a coerced confession. But here's what they actually said um, in the appeal. Hang on, wait. Can we just do a, a little experiment? Okay. Samantha, I think, I feel like... I know that you stole my mascara. <laughs> and if you don't tell me the truth right now, you're going to fry. Now yeah. tell me the truth. Let's test the theory and find out. I'm not saying a damn thing. <laughs> exactly. And that's exactly what you should say. <laughs> you're in an interrogation. Or you should say, I want my lawyer. And if you're actually going to send me to the electric chair, you know, give me the death penalty, then I want to see the paperwork from the DA. Because you, just, you, as a police officer, can't put charges against me, only a DA. No. Well, I mean, even then, like, you're not going to be the one that's sentencing me. So exactly. what difference does it make? You can say all you want. It, it's not up to you. But, you know, this. I think this lawyer was just kind of like, I got to do whatever I can to show at least I'm trying. <laughs> He's so dumb. <laughs> this is so dumb. The ruling was, it says, the general rule, however, is that a truthful and non-coercive statement of the possible penalties which an accused faces may be given to the accused without overbearing one's free will. In other words, they could say whatever they want. Such an account may increase the chance that one detained will make a statement. However, as long as the statement results from an informed and intelligent appraisal of the risks involved... Rather than a coercive atmosphere, the statement may be, may be considered to have been voluntarily made. So basically saying they can say whatever they want doesn't mean that they're actually bullying you into doing anything. That's your choice. Like you're the one that allowed them to threaten you and scare you into giving a statement. Yeah, exactly. And the only time that that can be actually called into question is if you have like a learning disability or something like that, where you can't fully understand what your rights are now that they've kind of rolled back Miranda rights. I don't know what that yeah. means for that situation, but if you if you don't understand what your rights are, even when they're being read to you, and maybe he didn't because he sounds like a really fucking idiot, to be honest. <laughs> he understood. He's just an idiot. He understood. He's just an idiot. It, it all falls on your it all falls on you as a responsible party to sit there and say I want my lawyer. I want my lawyer. I want my lawyer. Actually, you know what? I did cut up my wife and I buried her in my backyard in several pieces. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? I've thought about it. I just want to tell you what happened. Yeah. I want to unburden myself. What? (laughs) So the question that you had, the last one, the evaluation. So I found that interesting because I'd never seen that before. The appellate court's ruling was interesting also, so I wanted to include it. Normally, it seems like an evaluation would be pretty standard. They just go ahead and do it at the beginning. If for no other reason, then they don't have to deal with an appeal that even comes up. Um, But for whatever the reason, they decided not to allow this evaluation. I guess maybe they didn't feel like it was necessary. So the uh, court's or the courts, uh, the whole thing on the appeal doc was, it says the, the appellate first contends that the trial court erred in denying his motion for a psychiatric evaluation. Specifically, the appellate argues that because he was in, in digit, he was entitled to a psychiatric evaluation to assist in the presentation of his defense. He relies on Ake versus Oklahoma for the proposition that when a defendant demonstrates to the trial judge that his sanity at the time of the offense is to be a significant factor at trial, the state must at a minimum assure the appellate access to a competent psychiatrist who will conduct an appropriate examination and assist in the evaluation, preparation, and presentation of the defense. So two things, uh, indigent, indigent, that I looked that up too, because I had a feeling you would ask. No, I know what it is. It means that he can't afford his own like legal defense and things like that. He's basically obvious. Yeah, he he lost his house and all that other bullshit. But that's basically what that means. The other, I keep hitting my mic. The other thing that I was going to say, and now I can't remember. Oh, yeah. The other thing that I was going to say is 
sir, how are you going to be evaluated three years after your wife died? For how you for were temporary insanity, temporarily insane. Yeah, quite a so, back then. So their <laughs> response: a criminal defendant does not have a right to a mental examination merely because he requests one. Nor does the fact that an accused is indigent, poor or needy, automatically entitle him to a free psychiatric evaluation. An indigent defendant will be entitled to a state-funded psychiatric assistance only after he has made a preliminary showing that his sanity at the time of the offense is questionable. After carefully reviewing the record, this court finds no error in the trial court's analysis of the evidence presented by the appellate. A defendant bears the burden of persuading the court that a doubt exists as to his or her competency. The trial court held that the appellate did not make a significant preliminary showing of insanity at the time of the offense, and we agree. The appellate presented absolutely no testimony that he was suffering from a mental disease or defect at the time of the commission of the crime that would support his not guilty by reason of insanity defense. The only testimony the appellate put on in support of his motion for a psychiatric evaluation was that of two local attorneys. Not able to do that. Clint Brown testified that it had been his experience as a practicing attorney that an examination from Taylor Hardin Secure Medical Facility was thorough and furnished the court with a detailed report of a person's psychiatric history. Richard Adams, who had pre- previously been involved in the appellate's case, testified that he did not think the appellate was crazy or insane, but that he did need a psychiatric examination. The appellate failed to meet his burden, and the trial court's ruling was correct based on the evidence before the court. Moreover, the trial court is a far better is in a far better position to determine a defendant's competency to stand trial than a reviewing court, which relies only on the record. So, no dice, dude. Fuck off. Nice try. Nice try. <laughs> oh my god. So sad. Now, I was able to find two different ar- news articles about um, two different times he was up for parole, one in 2011 and again in 2022. In 2011, the district attorney, Scott Anderson, told the parole board that Stewart would have to live somewhere and that he didn't want any citizens of the county to have to be his neighbor, including himself. Apparently, it took less than five minutes for the parole board of three men to come to the decision to not grant parole and send Stewart back to his cell at the medium security Easterling Correctional Facility. Oh, in June 2022, Stewart, who is now 70 years old, was again denied parole after the parole board parole board voted unanimously. Stewart will be eligible for parole again in five more years. Anderson attended this parole hearing as well, again giving a plea to prevent Stewart from being able to live among the citizens of the state of Alabama. He further stated that he will be at the next hearing to make sure he's not paroled then as well. Yes. So I did want to, I didn't want to end it on that. I mean, it is a good thing. He's still in prison, but I did find this and I thought it was really touching. Um, it was a obituary um, for Debbie. After her body was located, a graveside service was held for Debbie at Rose Lawn Gardens of Memory. Per her obituary, graveside services were held for Deborah Wark, 32, of Decatur, Alabama, on Saturday, August 22, 1987, at 4 p.m. A light westerly breeze stirred the estimated 100 mourners as they stood under the 95-degree sun for the 15-minute graveside service. Met with foul play on 7-10-84, and her body was not recovered until August 19, 1987, under a fish pond in the back of her former home in Decatur. She survived by her father, Robert Harrison of Decatur, three daughters, JoJo Work, Beverly Stewart, and Megan Stewart, all of Decatur, one brother, Robert B. Harrison Jr. of Decatur, two sisters, Virginia Williams of Decatur, and Frances Ann Gannon of San Antonio, Texas. So I thought it was a kind of a really lovely touch that they ended up having a memorial service for her and freaking a hundred people showed up for the service. Yeah. And 90 something degree weather. Yeah. Well, it's August in Alabama. Yeah, true that. So that is the story of the murder of Debbie Stewart. Well, good job. That dude's an idiot. Yes. Um, very much so. And he, I would be very surprised if he ever got out of prison. It doesn't seem like they have any desire to let him out. Well, I mean, if he's in his 70s now, 
I highly doubt it. He'll he'll ever. If he is, he's well. Uh, I don't know, but you know, whatever. You never know. He's not. I, I don't see him getting let out. Yeah. I maybe maybe he'll get COVID, like my other case. <laughs> <laughs> we don't wish COVID on anyone here at Reaper Tales. Okay, fine. We don't. You just dealt with it for a week. Yeah, true. <laughs> well, good job. You did an excellent job. What a great story. Thank you. Good job, B. Um, as always. As always. <laughs> <laughs> so, Samantha, where can our four, I think we have five now, five listeners, oh. find us uh, on Instagram? At Reaper Tales Podcast. You can find us on Facebook at Reaper Tales Podcast. You can email us at ReaperGals at ReaperTales.com. Email us your show suggestions. Email us to tell us how excellent we do on this podcast. Um, we don't how take much you appreciate us doing this when we're sick, which has been the case several times lately. Yeah, exactly. I've had a rough start here on this podcast. Yeah. Uh, we don't take criticism. If you write criticism to us, it just goes directly in the trash. So just so you know, we don't ever see it. Um, be sure to like, rate, subscribe to whatever listening platform that you are listening on. Uh, I know that we say that a lot, but whatever platform you are listening on, make sure you do rate it, rate it and review it. Uh, it just, again, it makes sure that other people are able to find us the more people who rate us the more people who can find us and if you like this podcast you should actually do that for us you should want other people to hear us or maybe our don't. really <laughs> crazy weird voices when we're sick yeah exactly so until next time the reaper will come for us all